Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager at Metagenics. In this episode, I had the privilege to speak to world-renowned microbiome researcher, Professor Rob Knight. Professor Rob Knight presented for us at the Metagenics International Congress on Natural Medicine in June in the beautiful Hunter Valley. He was kind enough to give me some of his time at Congress to share his insights on the microbiome. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for joining me today. Before we dive into it, I've seen a lot of your online presentations, you've published several books, and you've travelled around the world, but I'm curious to know how a boy from Dunedin ends up heading a paediatrics and computer science department in California, San Diego. It also seems like an unusual combination. Can you give a bit about your background on how you've gotten where you are today? Uh, yeah, well, it's a bit of an indirect route. So uh, after after finishing my bachelor's in biochemistry at Otago, I uh, went to Princeton to uh, do a PhD in ecology and evolution, um, initially uh, with a project on mammalian pest control, although uh, that didn't work out so well. So, so I switched topics, um, finished, uh, finished a thesis on the origin and evolution of the genetic code, which required uh, learning not just a lot of uh, lab techniques, but also a lot of uh, statistical and computational techniques. So then I went from there to Colorado to continue working on that topic as a postdoc. I got a faculty position there in the Biofrontiers Institute in 2004 when it started up, which was a new uh, interdisciplinary institute there. So I was in in biochemistry and computer science there. And uh, then as the work we were doing got more and more into the the microbiome and more and more clinically relevant, uh, I realized it would be a good idea to be in a clinical department where I could uh, interact with physicians and um, and their patients on a much closer level. So, uh, so I moved to UCSD two and a half years ago, and uh, that's that's what led to that particular combination. And you might be wondering why pediatrics. Uh, yes, that's been on my mind for a long time. Yeah, so, so I think there's a tremendous amount of potential to intervene in early life in the microbiome. So the first two and a half years is when your microbiome is changing most rapidly. And uh, in terms of being able to do interventions that again have an impact over a person's whole lifetime, I think a lot of those interventions are in early life. Sure, sure. So tell me what you do day to day at the moment in San Diego. So we do a lot of uh, tech development in, in, in the lab. So uh, you know what, uh, what what I personally do is um, is, is a lot of uh, a lot of meetings about collaborations. Uh, um, sometimes uh, data analysis or working on papers. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of meetings with people on my uh, on, on my team. Uh, so uh, so the lab's about forty people now. A mixture of uh, mixture of postdocs, graduate students, um, technicians, uh, and, and so forth. So that certainly um, so it certainly keeps us all busy. Thank you. So probably a large contrast. I'm curious about your time in Tanzania, spending time with the Hadza tribe. Tell me, how was that, and how long were you there for? Uh, yeah, so that was in 2014. I was uh, I was there for a week. So uh, so we were collecting samples from the Hadza and from the huts that they live in. Um, so trying to characterize uh, trying to characterize the people and, and their environment, and uh, also doing a lot of uh, doing a lot of anthropometric measurements. So uh, looking at how the microbiomes correlated with growth and the kids in that population. Um, looking at uh, lo- looking at uh, looking at the microbes and the chemistry of the food items they eat. Uh, which uh, which we had a fair sampling of ourselves, everything from the baobab fruit to the uh, wild honey that they gather, uh, which which they eat, including the bee larvae, which are actually pretty tasty, um, <laughs> uh, although you don't find those in the supermarket too often. 
very different to the commercially available honey, is it? Um, well, it still has the larvae and the bees in it, which I've uh, never seen for sale. And, uh... <laughs> Fantastic, thank you. And have you done any other field work? Yeah, on, on various projects. So, so a lot of the human subjects stuff that we do is, uh, is on healthy people, including people handy to the university. Okay. Done some work with zoos, including sampling stuff like the Komodo dragons at the, oh, the Denver Zoo, for example. Uh, yeah, so, so that was fun. What else? Collection of, uh, collection of leaves off plants for paper we did a, a few years ago. Um, yeah, so, uh, and um, there's, there's probably a whole bunch that I'm, Forgetting, uh, yeah, it just depends a lot on the project and uh, whether uh, whether going there on site would be uh, would be helpful or the opposite of that. Tell me about yourself now. I think you have quote unquote been bio tracking yourself for many months with daily stool samples and other sorts of microbiome collections. Um, yeah, so, uh, so so that that started back in two thousand eight, and I'm still going. So uh, it's over yeah, eight yeah, years of time series data now. How often are you collecting? Uh, yeah, daily. Still daily while traveling here and everywhere else? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, so what have you found with yourself that impacts or changes the microbiome the most? Like, it's very it's very difficult to pin down um, particular short-term events. Like, over the long term, things like um, things like diet and especially things like the balance of uh, carbohydrates and uh, uh, carbohydrates to protein makes a big difference. And, um, and then uh, on, on the shorter term, things like uh, leafy green vegetables, you'll get a spike of oxalobacter uh, okay. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, most, most of the interest is, um, most of the interest is just in looking at, uh, looking at the drift over time and how that compares with people who are uh, less healthy. Okay. Uh, so, um, so, so essentially providing a baseline for what happens in uh, clinical populations where people have IBD, uh, like, um, uh, uh, like like we're uh, doing in more focused experiments. So there's very little information out there on microbiome dynamics, but uh, getting an understanding of what uh, what natural change looks like and what departure from that looks like in, in people with different clinical states is really important if we're ultimately going to try to change the microbiome deliberately. Let's talk about the American Gut Project, which is somewhat different to the traditional research you've done. So tell me, what inspired you to get involved in it and continue to be involved in it today? Um, yeah, well, well, actually, that was um, that was suggested by uh, Jeff Leach initially, who was um, who, who was just asking, well, is there any obstacle to uh, getting people involved in, in microbiome research if they want to be involved? And uh, he thought it might be interesting to run it like National Geographic's uh, Genographic Project, where essentially each person adds themselves to the cost of uh, um, adds themselves to the project and supports the cost of adding themselves to the project. So, uh, so I figured out, uh, you know, if we were going to do it, we'd need a we'd need a new liquid handling robot and uh, some new PCR machines and that kind of thing. So we figured out what the minimum amount we'd need to raise to uh, to be able to um, to be able to set it up and uh, let members of the public participate would be. And uh, and so he set it up, um, set it up on a crowdfunding site, and uh, astonishingly, like a huge number of people have been have been excited about that. So now we're up to over ten thousand participants that we've uh, sequenced microbiomes of and uh, released the data back for, which is pretty cool. And uh, it's amazing because most of these crowdfunded efforts are on the scale of ten to twenty thousand dollars for a science project. Um, this is on the scale of millions, and uh, it's just continuing to increase in popularity. So it's been an overwhelming response from the public. Incredible. And are Australians involved in that as well? Uh, yes. So, um, so Phil Hugenholtz at the University of Queensland is uh, running a local aggregation site. So for Australians who sign up for American Gut, um, essentially, uh, essentially the kits get sent out uh, from Phil's lab and then shipped back there, and then ultimately onto us for uh, sequencing and analysis. 
So, um, so, uh, so there's not a separate web presence at this point. Uh, we may do that sooner or later, um, but uh, but you know basically it depends on uh, you know ba basically it's more work for Phil. So uh, so when that's going to happen, I don't know. Sure. Now we need to be cautious on how we interpret this, and it's only correlations, and we have to rely on honesty. And sometimes collections isn't so great. But what are some of the things that you have determined from the American Gut Project in terms of the impact on diversity and other aspects that affect the microbiome? Um, yeah, well, although it's self-reported data, uh, we see very good relationships with a lot of the um, with a lot of the variables that we're interested in. And uh, one one thing that's interesting is that the number of types of plants that you eat has a very large impact on your gut microbiome. So if you eat a lot of plants, you have a high gut microbiome diversity, whereas uh, if you eat very few species, you have um, a low diversity state. In a way that's been um, in a way that's been correlated with a lot of uh, different disorders that have been linked to the microbiome. So, um, so interestingly, that has a much larger impact than whether you self-report as, uh, say, an omnivore or a vegetarian or a vegan. And um, if you think about it, uh, you know, you can be a vegan who mostly eats kale or you can be a vegan who mostly eats fries, and those, again, have really different consequences for yeah, you. Sure. So, uh, so there's a lot of variation within those dietary categories. And then, um, then a lot of the patterns are things that you'd expect, like how old you are, uh, whether you took antibiotics recently, um, whether uh, whether you have diseases like IBD or diabetes. Uh, one one thing that's interesting is that season has a pretty big effect, and uh, we're still trying to figure out whether that's due to dietary differences at different times of year, or uh, whether it's due to some other factor. Yeah. Uh, and then then more subtle effects, like we can pick up the effects of obesity, uh, the effects of exercise, even, which is kind of interesting. Um, and uh, all, all kinds of uh, all, all kinds of things that no one knew when we started the project were associated with the microbiome, even how many hours of sleep you get at night. But uh, so so um, so in retrospect, that makes a lot of sense because if you take germ-free mice, they don't have a circadian rhythm, and it only establishes when you colonize them with microbes. But uh, but our institutional review board, so the ethics board that reviews all this stuff at Boulder, was uh, you know very upset about a lot of those questions and why were we pestering people with this irrelevant stuff that couldn't possibly have anything to do with the microbiome? So it just goes to show. The seasonality is intriguing to me, and this is based off Jeff Leach's work with the Hudza tribe, who found that this community ate quite broad or diverse diets throughout the season depending on the availability of the foods with the wet season the dry season and so forth so do you think that's the dietary seasonality is the factor in this um seasonality shift in the microbiome um well maybe although uh, it's pretty well documented that even though you could buy the same thing from a supermarket every day uh in general people don't and there's pretty clear seasonal patterns in diet uh, yeah. even even with the availability of big macs all year round so the number of plants seems to be a strong factor would it be better perhaps to have not just a superfood like broccoli, but diversity in other various colors and species and so forth? Yeah, that, that's the direct implication that, um, that, that if you just eat a whole lot of broccoli, you're probably not doing yourself that much of a favor compared to what would happen if you ate a diverse spectrum of different plants. Yeah, I think it was Jeff Leach. I heard him talking about paleo. He characterized people on the American Gut Project that they typically have a better diversity because they may not be having the same foods all the time. I don't think... Uh, oh, I, I see. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what the basis for that statement would be. Um, so we're we're currently analysing the FFQ data, and uh, there, there's certainly people who are not on a paleo diet who have uh, who have very low diversity diets. 
Um, so I'm not sure whether that trend would hold overall. I think they're on paleo, but having a limited number of species versus vegetarian who may be having a, a broader range of species. Um, well, well that, that's certainly very possible. I mean, uh, the interpretations that people have of the paleo diet certainly don't have a lot of uh, overlap with what actual hunter-gatherers eat, so uh, I guess there's a lot of interpretations. Sure. So one of the messages that are pretty clear is diversity seems to be a key factor in microbiome health. But let's now look at the composition side of things, and we can see large differences in composition between healthy people and, and diseased individuals, but... Do we have any key messages there? What is the current consensus on the composition at the phylum level or are there any other specific genre that are a hero species that maybe we should be aiming for? The, the message that we're getting is that there's a lot of different healthy microbiomes and they have almost nothing in common. So uh, when, when you're looking at something like C. diff where you have a, where, where you have a consistent state that's an unhealthy microbiome, um, those are uh, like those. Those are very different from the whole range of healthy uh, from the a whole range of healthy microbiomes. But uh, although although there's some general trends like uh, having more butyrate producers is uh, is often good. So Ruminococcus and its uh, its friends. Um, whether whether that's right for everyone is still an open question. And uh, what what there isn't a lot of data on right now is uh, whether increasing the amount of particular taxa from uh, from baseline. Is, uh, is something that you can recommend as beneficial, because uh, if what's happening is the uh, if what's happening is your microbiome is responding to other conditions, then uh, the, then you might not be able to uh, you might not have a very good pathway uh, forward to increase um, to increase the amount of something. So, like if you took a bunch more ruminococcus, say, in a pill, uh, maybe it'll just pass through and not establish. Or maybe it would actually be counterproductive because its levels set by some other factor. So that that's really the huge key question in the field at the moment: is uh, given given your baseline state, is there a directional change that you could make that would improve it? And um, uh, you know, a lot of people have ideas about that, but there's very little solid data. Uh, most of what's done is in the case control paradigm, where you look at some healthy people, you look at some sick people, uh, they have some differences. But that doesn't mean that if you take the sick people and you change them to resemble the healthy people in the microbiome, well, that's actually going to make them better. And so uh, that's why you're seeing a lot more longitudinal study designs and uh, study designs with interventions at the moment. So looking at it from a clinical perspective on, on testing and diversity, what does testing offer to the clinician? Um, well, if, if you're testing for particular pathogens that you could, that you're going to do something about, uh, obviously that can be very valuable, and uh, that and uh, a lot of those tests are for individual genes that are involved in antibiotic resistance or involved in producing toxins rather than just looking at the looking at the species that are there. Um, the, uh, the the microbiome-wide testing at the moment is uh, very difficult to link to any sort of clinical recommendation. And there's two reasons for that. Uh, one, one is that in the context of a research study, we can often separate uh, cases for, from controls or make predictions about clinical states. But that doesn't mean that you can take, uh, take a test for an individual and, um, and uh, that, that's been produced by a different technology and uh, slot them into what we know in a particular research study, especially because they might be coming from a, different, from a population where all the background values are completely different. And then a second issue is that there's tremendous uh, variation in things like diversity. 
So, uh, so in a research study, often you'll look at the population level. Is there a difference in diversity between cases and controls on average uh, when, when you're looking at 100 people in each group? But that doesn't mean that from one individual measurement of one person's diversity level, you could place them in the good group or the bad group, or even, uh, or, or even that increasing the, the diversity from where it is at the moment would get them from the bad group into the good group. So uh, at the moment, it's very difficult to go from what can be measured uh, into something that you could use as a clinical recommendation. So, uh, so if you're doing it, so if you have an idea about a particular organism that you're trying to test for, and uh, either get rid of or resupply, uh, that makes some sense. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to uh, just do the whole microbiome test in the hopes that you'll get something out of it, the issue is you can tell a pretty good story out of almost any pattern, yeah. whether whether it's the real species that are actually in there or a randomised version of it. And, uh, and so the question is, um, uh, you know, how much do you actually get out of that? So, uh, so, so, um, so at some point, there'll be solid diagnostics based on this stuff, but those aren't on, uh, those aren't on the market yet. Yeah. And uh, one thing that's really important to remember is that a lot of the authorities that uh, certify clinical tests, what they're certifying is, can you measure something repeatedly? Not does that have, not, not does that measurement have any clinical value? Sure. And so it's always important to keep that in mind that just because it is certified doesn't mean that you'll be able to do uh, to uh, use it for anything that you um, that, that you can actually do clinically. So with the exponential growth, how far away is this clinically relevant data? Um, well, so from a technical perspective, I think we'll probably be able to uh, do something that's cross-validated and uh, works well for new people being added to uh, be, being added in within three to five years. Uh, from a regulatory perspective, I'm not sure how much uh, additional time beyond that it's going it's to take before these tests are on the market. I'm curious, with all the new connections that they're finding with disease states and the, the connections with the microbiome, can you tell me the novel ones, the intriguing ones? Yeah, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of very exciting research coming out. Um, some of which I've been involved with were, were in, in Parkinson's, uh, in multiple sclerosis, uh, in autism, um, and uh, one one thing I wasn't involved with, um, but uh, Tom Barodi, who's here at the conference, uh, was along with a number of collaborators in Arizona, was a recent fecal transplant uh, trial for autism that showed uh, improvement of both GI and uh, and, and behavioural symptoms. Which is uh, which is just amazing, and is exactly the sort of thing that people uh, a few years ago, even uh, when the first case control studies of autism started coming out, uh, predicted would never work. So having some clinical validation of that is very exciting. Um, there's also uh, there's also a lot going on linking the microbiome to things like stress and sleep, and uh, other things that have been seen more as the more as the um, uh, more more in, in the psychological domain, rather than uh, rather than having a directly physical basis. And uh, finding how our microbiome plays an essential role in uh, in, in these um, in, in these things that are more uh, more more seen as uh, properties of holistic health, I think, is very exciting. And and then then the links then specific links between nutrition and the microbiome. Uh, seeing how different people respond totally differently to the same food, but you can explain those differences in terms of the microbiome underlying it. That's uh, that's a very exciting direction, both in terms of current state and in terms of figuring out how to change your microbiome to improve health. So we can't do that right now, but uh, you know everyone's changing their microbiome in random ways that affect their health at the moment, right? And if we can figure out uh, how to how to give the readout and the user interface that lets you uh, change them in directed ways that improve things, that would be spectacular. And there's a lot of people working on that at the moment, including us. Fantastic. So obviously clinicians like to take action, although it's still an emerging area. Can you tell me what you've learned from your research and publishing books and so forth, that the things you now do or don't do 
in respect to looking after your microbiome? Um, yeah, so I certainly try to uh, to, to avoid um, uh, to, to avoid things that uh, affect the microbiome in adverse ways. So uh, uh, so so, um, so anything like antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, that kind of thing. Um, in general, uh, you know, if it's if if it were a life threatening situation, I'd take them. But in general, I try to uh, I try to minimize the use of. Um, if, if uh, anything that I know affects the microbiome, there's, there's an expanding list of uh, there's an expanding list of drugs that do. Um, uh, I try uh, in in terms um, in, in terms of uh, in, in terms of diet. Uh, like this is something that's very highly individual, and the same recommendations don't work for everyone. Uh, but for me, uh, reducing uh, reducing carbohydrates and uh, and especially but not limited to processed carbohydrates has uh, made me feel a lot better along a number of di- uh, dimensions. Um, I, I reintroduced nuts and yogurt, which I had eliminated um, uh, uh, eliminated a while ago on the grounds that nuts have a lot of fat in them and so on, uh, on, on the basis of uh, newer data coming, uh, coming, uh, coming through showing that they were uh, beneficial and despite the fact that they're calorific, they don't tend to, uh, they, they tend to uh, not be associated with weight gain. Um, try to uh, I, I try to eat more fiber than I used to. I mean, one one of the things is a lot of these recommendations. Although we now know uh, we we now know that the microbiome provides a mechanism for why some of them uh, why, why some of them are good. Uh, a lot of these recommendations are things that you would um, uh, that you would want to do anyway, right? Like. Uh, you know uh, the, the fact that the fact that we know that a lot of the fiber is uh, is, is processed by butyrate producers in the gut, and then the butyrate is beneficial. Um, that that's something that's been known for a long time, and the idea that you should eat fiber has been around uh, for a lot longer than the specific mechanisms from the microbiome. But uh, what? But but I think the promise is going to be uh, being able to make surprising individual level recommendations. And uh, that's where the field's going, but where we don't have a lot, we, we don't have the training data yet to uh, be able to do it on a large scale. Although things like the ZVL study uh, definitely point the direction to that. Um, so that, that's the that, that's the study from uh, Aaron Segal and Aaron uh, Alanab's lab, the Weissman Institute, uh, showing how different people respond completely differently in terms of glucose response to the same food items. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and so uh, and the reason why is the microbiome. So uh, being able to being able to do that for a much broader range of foodstuffs and a, uh, and a much broader range of populations, I think holds a, holds a lot of very exciting promise. Mm-hmm. Also tying it not just to blood glucose but to all kinds of other physiological responses. Outside of the diet, you hear researchers recommending going outdoors into green space. Yeah, well, I was doing that anyway, so I can't claim that I was. So, uh, yeah. so, so again, um, you know, there's a microbiome justification for it, but doing that stuff predated the work of the microbiome for me, at least, yeah, although yeah. not for everyone. Fantastic. Just back to the PPIs for the listeners. Can you tell me how PPIs affect the microbiome? I don't remember the specific uh, taxa that it targets, but uh, but I know there's been a number of different studies uh, that, that shows it as one of the largest effects on the, on the microbiome. So in the uh, LL Deep study in the Netherlands, for example, they they recorded a whole lot of factors affecting the microbiome in a population of about a thousand people, and PPIs were one of the big factors that they uh, found in the analysis, but weren't expecting. I, I don't remember what particular tax or targets there. I'm curious about the public perception of the microbiome. And I think maybe research is a little bit scarred by the Human Genome Project where some made bold claims that never came into fruition. It seems like the microbiome research is much more conservative, yet in the public media you do hear some claims on some strange things that it does, say about your choice in sexual partner, your shopping habits and all these 
um, weird and wonderful claims. Is there anything that you hear about the microbiome that you feel is misrepresented? Um, yeah, well, a lot of people are very enthusiastic about giving themselves fecal transplants from an unscreened donor, which yeah. is a terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, like, there's a lot of blood-borne and stillborn pathogens, um, and there's also uh, there's also a risk of uh, long-term effects that you could transmit along with the microbiome. Um, there's there's also uh, there's also tremendous public enthusiasm for probiotics that are that's well in advance of the evidence. So um, so it's kind of like. Uh, uh, um, so, so a lot, of, a lot of the data on probiotics has has been from uh, using probiotics to treat particular conditions, but that doesn't mean that if you're uh, healthy already, that taking probiotics is going to improve you from baseline. And it's kind of like saying, uh, you know, I had a headache and uh, I took an aspirin and I got better. So therefore, I think everyone should take a whole lot of aspirin all the time because you'll feel even better <laughs> when you do from baseline. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't work for drugs and you wouldn't expect it to work for probiotics either. Yeah. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, some things like eating fermented foods is a fair amount of evidence for. Uh, but then the question is, um, uh, you know, are you better off taking the probiotic isolated in a high dose or should you just be eating the whole food? And um, and uh, I, I personally would lean towards the, the latter approach as being, uh, you know, validated by thousands of years of cultural practice. Well, we'll wrap up in a moment, but I'm curious what's on your radar for you. I've heard somewhere you have a number of papers currently in review and you're publishing very frequently and literally getting emails from NASA. Even just a moment ago, you were gracious enough to ignore those to do a podcast with me. So tell me, what's on the horizon for yourself? Well, uh, the, the two the two main things we're trying to finalise at the moment are the uh, the American Gut paper and the uh, Earth Microbiome Pro- uh, Project paper, uh, both of which are in revision at the moment and uh, which we hope will be coming out fairly soon. So those those are both exciting in terms of uh, really showing what you can do with uh, large amounts of microbiome data. Um, we're uh, we're doing a lot in shotgun metagenomics at the moment, so essentially moving from marker gene studies to uh, studies that uh, to, to studies that are trying to do the um, task of uh, taking all the DNA out of an environment and then puzzle it back together and uh, see what genomes there are, what genes they have, and uh, and so what what's cool about that from a clinical perspective is uh, it gives you a lot of insight into things like antibiotic resistance, uh, pathogenicity islands, uh, uh, that that kind of thing, um, ability to utilize particular substrates like uh, particular kinds of sugars that you fundamentally can't get just by reading the organism's name tag. You need to know more about it. And, uh, and so that's very exciting. We're also do a lot, doing a lot on predictive modeling. So what we'd like to be able to do is not just classify whether you're healthy or sick from your microbiome state right now, but we'd, we'd like to be able to predict what's going to happen to you in the future and also, um, also predict whether a particular treatment, whether it's drugs or diet or prebiotics or probiotics, um, is going to work for you or not based on your, uh, on your microbiome state at baseline. And so, uh, so there's tremendous progress in all those areas, and I think that's going to be uh, very exciting over the next few years. And just before we head off, tell me about the book. What's it about? You've been so busy. What made you want to write a book on top of all that? Yeah, well, there's, there's three books now. So the first one was uh, Follow Your Gut, which, uh, which is basically a, a, short book, a short book based on my TED Talk and uh, gives kind of an overview of the microbiome field uh, and uh, what you can and can't do. Uh, the second book, which you probably don't care a lot about uh, for, for this audience, is Sustainable Shale Oil and Gas, and uh, that's more related to what my company does, where uh, what we're doing is sequencing the DNA out of uh, oil and uh, well cuttings to guide uh, various oil field decisions like production allocation and so on. And um, then uh, the most recent one is Dirt is Good, 
which I wrote together with Jack Gilbert, and uh, both of us get asked a lot after we give uh, anything from seminars to public lectures about, uh, you know, all kinds of random questions about the microbiome. And so in this book, it's a question and answer format where essentially parents who have questions about their kid's microbiome can very rapidly look up the answer to a particular topic and then see, uh, you know, first off, whether we know the answer. And for a lot of the questions, we'll just admit that no one knows the answer. And then if it is known, what the current best, uh, best practices recommendation is. And uh, also, that's uh, very thoroughly linked back to the evidence that supports it. Fantastic. Yeah, that, that was just released on, um, on, on June 6th. So, uh, so you, can, you can get it from bookstores or off Amazon, and there's a Kettle edition as well. Well, Professor Knight, it's been fantastic to have you join us. The crowd here have absolutely loved you. The questions at the back of the room at Congress have been flooding in, so I'm glad we got to cover some of those. I appreciate your time and look forward to hearing more from you and seeing more of your research in the future. Uh, well, thanks, Nathan. And it's been a lot of great, it's been a really great conference, like a lot of uh, very interesting people brought together. So uh, certainly, uh, certainly very happy to take part in it. And uh, thanks again for your interest. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.